data is like the new oil. You got to be able to extract it, refine it, and monetize it. That could be for us or that could be for an enterprise. But the hardest part is a lot of times the, the very front end of that. How can I get the data out of the source? How can I refine it to understand what is usable and what is noise? And then ultimately, how do I digest that data to give it to the end user so that they see value? It's difficult to do that. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, I'm super excited uh, to dive into your your past here. You've got a, an interesting, uh, you know, career trajectory coming out of the dot com era. You know, currently you're the CEO of Uptake. You guys are a, a predictive analytics platform for the trucking industry. So let's just dive in. Let's start there, uh, where you're at now. We can maybe weave in some of the, you know, the the stories, you know, from eToys.com and Cars.com. But uh, let's start with Uptake. If you can kind of you know, tell me about what you do there. Yeah, so uh, I'm the CEO of the company, um, and also one of our our board members. Um, I've known our our founder and our uh, executive chairman Brad Keywell for probably almost close to ten years now. So we had done a previous venture together, um, where we were both co-founders of that company as well. And um, yeah, and so we're you know today. Um, we're essentially reinventing what's called fleet maintenance. Um, it's not something that is uh, typically out in front of the uh, transportation sector. Usually you're reading now about whether it's uh, zero emission vehicles or autonomy or you know um, all the different things that are happening with the actual truck. The actual maintenance of the truck really hasn't you know, been reinvented in a very, very long time, right? And so what we're doing is using data to essentially help the fleet maintenance operations proactively schedule repairs, reduce risk, um, I believe increase um, uh, driver happiness. So ultimately driver retention, which we know is a big deal. Um, and also I think retain technicians. Um, I think technicians um, seeing or having the ability to proactively work on a on a truck with the right part at the right time um, and having that vehicle in the shop so it avoids downtime uh, is is a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, that's what that's what we're doing right now. We do that for both the we, what we call commercial, so everything that's on the road that you and I see, and then we're also doing it uh, within the government sector as well. Cool. And one thing that really stands out to me, like I, I love these unsexy businesses, uh, you know, these things that are like under the hood that just are not, uh, you know, consumer facing. They're just, you know, sort of like data data plays behind, you know, behind the scenes making companies work. There's a, a good example of this company called uh, uh, SEI here in, in uh, outside of Philadelphia. They're like the back end for banks. They They kind of build like this backend database system that's, you know, it's kind of old school, I think at this point, but they're like a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, and they just like power the backend systems that banks use. So I love these, like some of these companies just get massive. And what, what strikes me is that you, you were at, you know, you started in this dot-com era, this like consumer, uh, you know, kind of website.com era with like etoys.com. You were, I think you're at cars.com apartments.com. So these are all like super consumery 
businesses, uh, e-commerce and, you know, like uh, consumer interactive businesses and like this, uh, you know, th this transition to to uptake, it's like very different from from what you were doing before. Like, does that does that strike you uh, ever that, it, you know, the difference is there? Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it, yeah, I, I, yes, for sure. If you were just looking at my resume and um, or you looking at my LinkedIn profile, whatever. I, yeah, I I've had this affinity to probably SaaS indirectly um, building SaaS products, probably within either marketplaces or building it within consumer products. Um, but I love the SaaS space. I love uh, I love the ability to be able to shape a product and take it to market and you know watch that flywheel catch as they always say and then you know basically you know you get your first to your 50 to your 500 to your 5000 you know whether it's users or customers or whatever it might be um I, that's what drives me honestly um building teams um being around product being around go to market um and i, I know this is you know, probably an overplayed term, but I, I 100% subscribe to failing fast. Like, I have no problems getting something out there, seeing if it works, and if it doesn't, you know, pivot as quickly as you can into the next thing, um, and just continue to try until you can figure out what the right recipe is. Um, and that that's kind of been my career as well. So it's been, um, yeah, that's I, I, I absolutely love love the space. Yeah, I totally get that. There's nothing more satisfying than. Uh, like having all your your pipeline metrics and then you know making a bet like taking a bet in your business you know maybe it's a marketing bet or some sort of like you know changing the way you 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 like changing your your pricing model or something and just making a bet and then tracking those metrics all the way down through your funnel and then like you know to your PNL like the ultimate metric and seeing you know how it how it impacts cash flow and and profitability that's there's there's literally nothing more satisfying for me than than to to see that you know obviously it's like uh you know some typically like multi month to kind of see that trickle all the way through the all the way through you know the all those stages but uh what are some of like the you know I, i'm i'm really curious like from like a cars.com or an apartments.com uh i i would assume there's probably like pretty similar KPIs that you would measure at, you know, the most important, like the three or five most important KPIs there versus uh, an uptake. I have to imagine, you know, coming from these sort of like consumer e-commerce or marketplace businesses to a, uh, you know, B2B analytics platform for a super specific industrial niche. Uh, I have to imagine that like the KPIs are drastically different. Uh, is that, is that true? And like, what, what are they? That is accurate. So, you know, I would say cars.com and apartments.com are our are leading indicator, although uh, not always leading was, was we, I think we lived and died really by our net promoter score, right? So how, how much, how happy were the customers, how happy were the customers using the site and how happy were the dealers and the multifamily sort of owners that were ultimately advertising um, um, or the, you know, the apartment managers that, you know, how happy were they with, with the experience overall, right? So I would say that was the ultimate. Then you had basically like units. So you could have like your dealer account, your, your auto, you know, how many cars do we have listed on the site? Um, and then there, you could go down the funnel all the way into like the actual products, right? Like how, how long were people on the site? What's the abandon rate? How many leads came in? 
you know, the thing that I think is tough when you're in a in a consumer world like that, and I don't care if it's paid per click or it's subscription or whatever it is, you're constantly defending value, always defending value, right? You're defending value with the ultimate buyer of the solution to say, you know, well, you promised me 40 leads a month and I got 30 or I got 50, but 50 were junk. Well, how do you know they were junk? And like, so you're you're in that constant mode of, of defending value and it's difficult, right? It's really difficult on sales. It's difficult on support and operations. So, you know, that net promoter score a lot of times is, is important and customer satisfaction. It's ultimately using the product. Um, it, at uptake, it's a little different. Um, it's a, it's a couple of things. One is internally, I would say what we're looking at is like assets under management, right? Comes right away. It's like, okay, do we have, how many trucks are we monitoring on a daily basis? Okay, we're monitoring 100,000. How do you get to 200,000? How do you get to a million? Uh, you call so, that AUM? Like, uh, yeah, you would consider, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, so, so there's assets under management. And then what we call, uh, it's a horrible acronym, but ARPU, right? So it's average revenue per unit. So how much revenue are we getting per, per truck, uh, price per truck per month, right? In a, in a typical subscription model. Um. Our customer success team does do net promoter score, but probably but a little bit different than cars and apartments where it's really sort of on an individual customer basis. Um, how happy are they with the service and the product? And then we've got an amazing customer success team. They go actually really deep too in true usage of the product. And here's the big difference between a consumer and really sort of like a SaaS service offering like we're off, like we're doing. When a truck Fire it. This could be on either direction. When a fuck, when a truck fires an insight, it's got to the precision has got to be it's got to be great for them to continue to use the product. Because think about it: if the truck comes in to the shop and it doesn't have a problem, what do you think the driver's disposition is for the next time that alert happens? And they're like, "Hey, you got to get the truck in right there." It's like well, you told me that last time. On the flip side, there's many times where the driver doesn't see something on the dashboard. And we're like, we're seeing basically, we've seen this pattern on a thousand other trucks. And this is ultimately what's going to happen. Get the truck in, in the next week. Now this is depending on severity. They get the truck in and they're like, you would have been broken down within a week. And that's my favorite story, by the way. Right. And that then gets the driver more convinced on the services, the software that the fleet operator is using and the next time that call comes in, they don't they don't question it. And those metrics are soft metrics, but like I get I go back to our customer success team working with each customer on a monthly basis and then doing roll-up quarterly reports. Like that's that's the fun stuff to going back to what you and I were talking about when you're building the product and you're you want to enhance the product. Um, those are the types of metrics we really dive into or look at. I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Perception is is so uh, is so critical. Like there, I think there's a book called uh, "The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing." Uh, I think that's what it's called. Uh, the The production team will like research it and put it into the the show notes. But uh, essentially, 
it talks about this idea of once somebody forms like the, the initial first impression is really critical. Like that first impression, it's sort of like an empty ball, you know, it's a, just a ball of clay that can be molded. And once that first impression is created, it's really, really hard to undo that. Like there's kind of like, you know, once, once you put your, once a customer or a user puts you, you know, your brand into a box, like it's really hard to get out of that box. And if, you know, if, if the truck driver has like two experiences or even potentially one experience where they get that false flag, they come in and they're like, why am I here? And there's nothing wrong. Uh, I imagine that's like really hard to undo that. Uh, and they almost just probably just like have a, have a, an impression in their head of, you know, what the product is that, you know, probably is hard to undo. So that's like, I'm sure there's like a lot of fine tuning. Uh, I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit more, but I'm sure there's a lot of fine tuning in your product to both eliminate those false flags while also not missing real uh, important, uh, you know, signatures that are indicative with predicting a failure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it doesn't take many of those false failures for them to say, why am I using this product? Right. Like so that's where the fine tuning um it's why we you know i i put a lot of i put a lot of emphasis on you know the team that we have our data science team is phenomenal uh, they've been doing this for you know our the 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 head of our data science team has been with uptake for 8 years since literally the very very beginning and he has seen everything from you know uh a locomotive to a windmill to a nuclear reactor to you know um you guys are work, working on all those? We have in the past. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We were um, at different points of time over the maturity of the company. We we have covered the gamut on on those types of assets. Okay. I, I I'm sorry I took you off track, but it, so you eventually it, it decided to just go into trucks as a as a yeah. Need. And it might be just take two minutes and just really kind of I'll tell you the quick quick story is you know Brad Brad Kewell, our, our our founder and our executive chairman was in an event with the the former CEO of, uh, of Caterpillar. And he asked them, he said, where do all your millions of machines that are around the world, where's all that data go at the end of the day? And I'm loosely like telling the story, but he, he basically, for all of his purposes said, hey, go, you know, go to Peoria, Illinois at headquarters. And it like sort of rocks, like we don't do much with it. And, and the light bulb really kind of went off for Brad uh, to put together a team. And he asked, he asked them, he just said, hey, could I have one asset? Like just to, just to try like uh, my theory that there could be something that we could do to help with preventative, preventative or predictive maintenance. And it was a locomotive. And they worked on basically from, you know, dissecting the different parts of the locomotive. And what they got, they figured out was there was a way to look really at wheels and bearings and all the different parts that make, you know, the locomotive roll. And they predicted failure of a, a specific part. And that's what really sort of launched uptake, um, at, you know, in, in 2014. That's really, that's what, that's what launched our company. Awesome. When, when was it founded around the same time? 24, yeah, 2014 is when they they did the test, and then it was late 2014, early 2015. Uptake was formed, and so that kind is of kind fun, of like the inception story of the company. Then, yeah, what was kind of fun for me personally, and and my identity back to Uptake was, we were sort of in this conference room, 
And one half of the conference room was uptake with like three or four guys. And I was building an automotive analytics startup on the other end of the table on the same floor. They, they jetted out and, and, you know, hired 500 people to kind of like go build this, you know, this massive entity under cat to, to start with cat. And, you know, basically I launched out to do, build like a team of 20 or 30 to do this analytics, but we were always in the same floor in the same fabric, you know, for, for the most part. So the, so what I got to see from like true data science and what I got to see from, you know, how to manage like these really large enterprise accounts, I got to see it like front and center, which was amazing and truly helped me when I was building Driven uh, to really kind of figure out, okay, if I'm going to go work with, with an OEM or I'm going to go work with a Penske or a CarMax dealership group, you know, being able to have that sort of access to those to those people with an uptake was huge. That's cool. Wait, is that other company, that uh, Caterpillar company, still around, or what's uh, what's the story there? No, the the long and short of it is, without getting into too much detail, is that CEO that uh, Brad and team were working with retired. Another CEO came in. Um, there was sort of a difference of opinion on, um, you know, the the direction and what what Caterpillar wanted to do with the data. And so the, the relationship ended up getting dissolved, but we kept all the IP. Um, and you know, a, a lot of uh, we don't we don't use we don't do much with we don't do anything really anymore in ag. We we don't do much in rail um, at this point. So that was really sort of coming in to the company. So I got brought in in 2020. Really, the idea was to get laser focused, um, and I saw the upside. I saw the upside in transportation for a lot of reasons. Um, the lack of production, the lack of technicians, the lack of drivers, the lack of part availability. And we were just sitting on like some amazing, amazing IP that had been built over the, I guess, five, six years prior to me arriving. And I was like, God, if we could package this up and start using it, we could take this to market. And we had a great, great head start. So it was it was fantastic for me coming in and having all that infrastructure and all that IT readily available to go use. Cool. I took you off track about five minutes ago. You were just wrapping up the part about uh, like the false flags and how you kind of handle that fine tuning and make sure that uh, you don't lose the truck drivers or the technicians with too many of those, uh, you know, false predictions. Yeah. So, you know, we've we have. We have we have hundreds of insights, right? That are basically broken down and, and packaged into, you know, if you think of after treatment, you think of coolant, you think of basically everything in sort of the engine out to like the brakes. Um, those insights are sort of they, they're packaged up, and every time an insight fires, we catalog it, we look at it, and so. The reason why that assets under management um, metric I was telling you about is really sort of at the top is the more assets we have that we're managing, the greater the learning, the greater the make model year uh, event base, um, it, the, the larger we can get of a data set, the better, right? And so these models just get more and more intelligent over time as we're, as we're seeing more data and as we're seeing more data geographically too. So the Northeast might look very different than the Southeast. Um, the, the, the type of the truck that's being driven, um, you know, is it an owner operator? 
uh, versus it's a uh, it's an employee of the company of the fleet. Um, that has a lot to do with the truck as well, um, because the owner operator actually owns the truck. They're in that truck full time. They're not somebody else isn't coming in and out of it on a full time basis. So the driver behavior is pretty consistent. Um, but that's what really our data science team and our and our and our modeling team is constantly looking at is is basically those insights that are firing on a daily basis is what what result did it produce what for those that are very high or high how are they reacted to and i should probably explain this real quick and, and make it i'll use it as an analogy we're going back to the false flag idea if you think of a truck and you think of all the parts and all the alerts that we could fire it could be it could be you know a dozen a month or more well how do you sort of reduce the noise as well? Because you can get for everything on our application from very high, meaning like you better get that truck in as soon as possible because you're going to have a breakdown to a low. And here's the analogy. If you have a security system at home and the battery is starting to die on your window, it, you, get, you get an alert on your phone or you get an alert on the keypad. It's like, hey, you may want to change the battery. You're depending maybe where that window is. You'll change it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you got to change it right away. Somebody's breaking your front door down or breaking a window or coming in your house. You're getting called. Maybe your significant other is getting called or the emergency contacts. Getting, the police are on their way. Think of that analogy as like our very high to our low. Right. And we could show you a lot of things about the truck. So what the what these fleet operators will do is they will take the low and the medium and they'll sometimes weave that in. Uh, for the next uh, PM. And so when the truck driver brings it in, they're like, oh yeah, we had this all cataloged from the last month. We're going to do this maintenance in addition to what you brought the truck in for. Yeah, that's smart. Uh, so I, I'm i curious, like, you know, it's how, you talked a little bit about models and kind of training. So uh, are you guys using a like machine learning model and is it like a TensorFlow environment? And and uh, talk a little bit about that. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so we're using, yeah, it's 100% machine learning. Um, it's what we do, what we have built is all internal. Um, so we've got 52 patents um, that again, cover a lot of previous sort of uptake and then also cover what we do today. Um, so that's the pure science. So what happens is, is that uh, we work with the top call it five telematic service providers or TSPs. They, that's the actual device in the truck. So we don't do anything in hardware. That's producing basically the signal. And then what we're looking at is whether that's a sensor or a fault on the truck, we take that data we put our science then on top of that data and we produce the result back to the end, end customer. So we're sort of complementing the TSPs in a, in a joint manner and then giving the data in a way that they can understand to the, to the actual fleet operator or the fleet, you know, basically the head of fleet maintenance. The person ultimately making this decision that says, wow, I got to either get that truck in or I got I to catalog it in a work order management system to ensure that that truck gets this type of maintenance next time it's brought in. Yeah, yeah. So what's uh, so you guys are building your own models uh, and kind of like building your own machine learning uh, capabilities for the platform. Uh, like, what are what what are some of like the things that you know? Walk me through it. Some examples of you know, for instance, uh, 
you know, you're, you're predicting, uh, I don't know what a common one is, but you know, maybe like an axle failure or something like that. How, yeah, how would so you, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you one that is, um, uh, one that's pretty from one that's pretty, pretty common. So in the, we, in the bundle of insights, we, we call it after treatment. And there's one that's, um, it's a, it's called a NOx sensor. It's a, it's the nitrogen oxide NOx sensor. Um, and it's basically used to verify uh, the efficiency of the um, the catalytic the, the catalytic uh, reduction system. So it's it's a very very important part of the of of the engine. So we have a sensor on there, um, and so we can talk to let's say Geotab. Geotab is is essentially sending us data back from the NOx sensor. We are we have data we we have built it, we have built a model around that knock sensor and we essentially then can send the data back to the fleet operator that says we're seeing we're seeing anomalies or we're seeing strange behavior with your knock sensor these are the this is the frequency we're seeing it this is where we're seeing it in the time of day when the truck's being driven and so then it what will typically happen is the fleet operator will then look, give it to a technician and the technician will either say, yeah, you know what? We got to get this truck in. This is happening too frequently, or it's only happening once a week. Again, we'll catalog it. We got to get this truck in anyway for X, Y, Z maintenance. And we'll get that. We'll get, we'll look at the knock sensor um, in a month. It will all depend on the criticality of the, um, you know, of the, uh, of the alert. So that's like uh, pure sensor data from that one sensor. Uh, but it's I guess it's not enough that it would trigger a check engine light on the on the onboard computer. Is that right? It could no, absolutely could. The not the knock sensor could fire absolutely fire a light on, depending again on how frequent it was coming in, um, you know, what was coming on. Um if that was happening every hour or you know, it was basically to the point where the knock sensor was was having full on issues. That light will come on, and then obviously the technician will say, "Okay, we got to get the we got to get the truck in." So, if you take that knock sensor, we've got 184. Well, we've got 188 more insights that are just like that one that are cataloged and everything from engine to engine cooling to the chassis to the transmission to the exhaust to the braking system um basically thinking about it's 30 different packages that are roll-ups of that you know almost 200 insights yeah and i'm sure like a big part of it uh you know i have to imagine a big part of it is like detecting things that might not trigger a check engine light that, because the check engine check engine light kicks on, it might be you know maybe it's just like a warning check engine light. Maybe it's like your engine's about to blow up check engine light. But uh, if you can catch those things like three months early when they're about to go into the shop for regular maintenance, so you can like nip it in the bud then, as opposed to waiting till you're on a you know two thousand mile haul or something. Like that's probably the 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 strategy there, right? You hit the nail on the head. That, that's exactly right, and. It doesn't have to be a check engine light to come on. The sensor could be firing and showing things that are happening with the truck uh, way ahead of time before that light comes on. And that's, again, where the science comes on to say, we're seeing variable X, Y, Z. We've seen this, I'm using a thousand times 
on a like make model, which leads to this type of failure, alert the fleet technician that this problem is going is happening or going to happen, and they get the driver in. What's really hard a lot of times is the driver just believes the light. The light has to be on. So so think of like the person on the other end calling, we've got to give them a great application experience, or we got to give them the data that gets into their BI system or whatever system they're using as system of record to say, here's every reason why you need, so we call it recommended actions. Here's every reason why you need to get this truck in. And it's not like you guys are, like you guys aren't the shop facility, right? You're not the maintenance facility. So it's not like there's an, like your incentive is to warn the customer Warn, warn the driver and warn, warn the fleet technicians uh, ahead of time that they need to take action, right? Um, we're not communicating directly with the driver, like per se, like we don't send like anything to like their mobile device or anything else. We're sending it to the, to the, to the person that is actually managing the fleet itself. So, okay. so all the tech, usually what ha- the way it works is it depends on the size of the fleet, right? Um, but we've got a customer that has 19 repair facilities around the United States. They've got 1,200 trucks in their fleet. They have one VP of fleet operations. And then he has basically 19 shop fleet managers. And then he has like 300 technicians that are across those 19. So the idea is that our customer is his 19 managers that we're called, that we're sending the alert they're, they're in the, they're using the application and then they're working with the technician and say hey I'm seeing this this and this we got to get the driver the, the technician's not making the call it's usually what we call a virtual technician or as a call center but it's somebody that's outbound dialing to the driver to get the driver convinced to bring the to bring the truck in and yeah and here's, interesting here's what I love this is what I absolutely love about the space because this is so new there's jobs that are going to get created over the next three to four years. And I think, I mean, it's happening right now, but I think it's going to be way more commonplace that this virtual technician role will be like a, a normal role on LinkedIn. And what it'll be is it'll be the technician that has 15, 20 years experience of, on, on a truck, turning a wrench or, you know, diagnosing an engine, whatever it might be. And they're using this, they, they're, they're very familiar with analytics or very familiar with these applications and they are working with a driver, whether it's through mobile or a call or whatever it might be, but to be basically explain in very technical detail of why the driver is going to have a problem. Yeah. And I, so I want to like zoom out for a second here too. This is really interesting to me. I was telling you uh, on our last call together, I was telling you about uh, my friend, Ben Johnson, who has the the company Freya systems here in the Philly area. And they do, uh, they do similar stuff uh, to what you guys are doing. They're more of a service model and they do it specifically for helicopters and like military helicopters and mili- I think they do military planes as well, but definitely a focus on military hel- helicopters from what I understand. Uh, so that's like a super specific niche and like definitely you don't want a helicopter to fail because it'll fall out of the sky. So uh, I think that, you know this predictive maintenance stuff is really important there. Uh, but what other industries, like what other use cases besides uh, truck fleets and military aviation uh, vehicles, what other uh, what other use cases 
do we have for this sort of thing? I, you know, one I heard a long time ago was uh, a guy at a startup uh, event I went to, this is probably eight years ago, was doing it for residential plumbing systems. Essentially, there was like IoT sensors you would put all over your house and it would detect leaks or like issues with like your water heater potentially and all these different things. But what other, you know, I, I don't know if the startup ever got traction, so maybe that's not a good use case, but uh, so what other use cases do you know of? There's there's hundreds. There are, I mean, literally hundreds. And I'll give you maybe three or four that are, are, are top of mind. Um, a wind farm that you see down when you're driving down the highway. Um, that wind farm is being operated usually by a third party, right? So somebody owns that wind farm, but the, the actual maintenance of those windmills, those windmills, a bird hits it, it stops spinning at the rotation, uh, ice gets on the blade, um, the, the rotor fails inside. Every single one of those parts can be monitored via IoT. Um, and that's a big deal because depending on the rotation is what ultimately is creating the electricity, so the monitoring of all those different parts ensure that it can rotate at the necessary speed to create the power, uh, that's a big deal, right? And they um, and also the number of windmills to working in harmony is, 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 is important. So you got 10 mills out of a, a farm of 50. Okay, that's a, that's a problem. You got one windmill out of, out of the farm of 50, that's less of a problem. So you got, you got wind transformers on your street um huge huge deal all sensor all iot based um think about the transformer that is in the gov you know on the governor street of your of uh your community you know funny you bring that up I, I live in downtown philadelphia and uh there was one that caught on fire at the building across the street from me the building got evacuated a few weeks ago and now they're tearing up the street uh at 15th and walnut in philadelphia uh, and then years ago, I lived in a different building, like 10 blocks away. And I think a transformer caught a gas line on fire and it blew up and like a manhole cover launched. It was under a like a, a dumpster, it like launched the dumpster, like ripped the front of this building off. And it was like this. It was the laundromat that I dropped my clothes off at. And the lady who ran the front desk just like happened to walk to the back right when it happened. And otherwise, she would have been like you know, obviously killed from that, that explosion. So she got super lucky, but, uh, that was like a, you know, I remember I was on the 26th floor and I remember, uh, thinking like, I heard this huge explosion. I thought a truck like crashed into the building because I could feel my bed shake. And it yeah. was, it was that transformer gas explosion across the street. Yeah. The tra so, tra so really let's call it, let's call it utility. You can call it wind. Um, you could do water treatment plants, you can do aviation, you can do, uh, we've done stuff with nuclear, um, we've done stuff on oil rigs um, for the major, um, for the super majors in gas. Um, it's, it's, it, I mean, really truly is endless. And, and I mean, Brad's vision at the end of the day when he's building uptake was he wanted to connect every asset in the world. His, his belief was that the world would be a better place if you could connect basically every human, you know, the humans with the assets and data. So if you could essentially um, bring those three together, um, you know, you can make the world a better place. And and I I I I fully subscribe to it. It's a, it's a little bit more difficult to connect every asset in the world, right? But I subscribe to the idea 
we just we have narrowed the focus now into transportation because the criticality to our supply chain and ultimately, you know, it's pretty important to our, our livelihood right now. Um, but yeah, there's there, there's there's many. I gave you the locomotive, right? Um, that that's that's an easy one. Um, but th there's the, the number of sensors going on just to things that pivot, the things that move, the things that process, the things that um, are just in our common day to day. It's it, it's it's happening by the nanosecond. The the amount that are getting produced and getting uh, getting added into the ecosystem. Uh, you're saying new sensors coming online with existing, like new new equipment being installed or things being plugged in. Correct. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I heard uh, a stat that every, I don't know, I don't know if it was every year or every two years, uh, more data is created than all data that has previously been created. Created. Right. I, I, I mean, you know, my background in automotive. I spent a lot of time with the OEMs uh, after our company was acquired and learning even about sensor data on cars, uh, on vehicles. And that's ultimately, you know, what's what's driving the autonomy side is the, the, with the ability for every sensor to look at what the vehicle is doing at all times. Um, hundreds of sensors, thousands of thousands of data points, millions and millions of you know, uh, uh, of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of petabytes getting created every, probably every month now, you know, within the automotive sector. So, you know, the interesting thing is we're producing a lot of data to, your, to, to what you just said. Let's just say in two years, we produce more data than, you know, all previously combined. That's great. But what do you do with it? And that's that's always the that's the hardest part about what we do is we get a lot of data, but you got to get to the source. You, you know, I, I've used this analogy before: is data is data is like the new oil. You got to be able to you got to be able to extract it, refine it, and monetize it, right? And that's that could be for us, or that could be for an enterprise. But the hardest part is a lot of times the, the very front end of that. How can I get the data out of the source? How can I refine it to understand what is usable and what is noise? And then ultimately, how do I digest that data to give it to the end user so that they see value? That, yeah. that, that it's difficult to do that. Yeah, it's there's like in the software industry, there's some companies that are kind of similar to what you're doing, but for software, like there's Splunk and Sentry and New Relic, and they're kind of doing, uh, you know, sort of like predictive maintenance for software applications and for cloud environments. Uh, and That's I can Splunk. think back like, you know, 15 years ago, writing software and, you know, you'd write like a raw PHP application, no framework. Anything you wanted logged, you had to literally write code to lot to make logs, and you know, uh, so not that you know some logging was happening. You know, you had like your server logs, like error logs and access logs and secure logs on Linux and that sort of thing, like Apache logs. But there wasn't like a lot of logs happening. And now you, you use a framework like Laravel or like you know Ruby on Rails or something, and they spit out a bunch of logs. You've got you know, uh, your AWS environment, that's spewing logs. You use one of these like, 
you know, software packages like New Relic, and those are like spewing logs as well, like really robust logs. Like you, you click, you know, an error and you go into it and it's like multiple pages with tabs and drill downs into functions and, you know, variable, uh, you know, uh, contents. And, you know, it's, it, they go like the logs are insanely deep. And uh, so just even that, like thinking about how much more data a single software application produces now than it did 15 years ago, uh, just like, you know, kind of like uh, exhaust, I guess, like exhaust data just for like existing and running. It's just like spewing off all this exhaust data uh that 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 is even like mind blowing a little bit and i'm sure like you know hardware devices are doing the same thing they're running probably like linux and embedded you know circuitry systems and those systems are spewing off logs that are getting more and more robust so that's i'm sure what you tap into to run your system yeah yeah it's um i can't speak to the um what the tech team is doing in the sense of analyzing all that or or, or how they do it um, but I, it's pretty funny. I do remember at cars, uh, at cars.com, we were a beta user on Splunk. We actually, oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a free, we had a free license for probably like two years on that, on that, as long as we gave them back feedback. And, and, and I just remember being amazed at the simplicity and how quickly we could process that log data compared to what we were doing as like humans and combing through it and looking at, you know, various different, uh, like we had a big scraper problem for a long time. And so I remember just, we were going through logs to figure out like how, you know, how to, how to avoid or how to stop it. And, and Spunk was awesome. It's amazing how fast things evolve. Uh, you know, like there's just in, in all of business, you know, like new new ideologies, new technologies, new frameworks, new systems. Uh, I was thinking about it last night. I was listening to a podcast, the Acquired podcast, but they had a Jason Calacanis as the guest on the show. I don't know if you know Jason Calacanis from uh, he's like uh forget it. He's a VC. He was like, you know, he was like the, one of the first investors in Uber, Airbnb, Calm. Uh, you know, he's, he, he has like 350 investments. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's super well-known like personality, but, uh, he was on, it was an older episode, but he was talking about like the first time he ever heard of an SPV, like a special purpose vehicle. And he was talking about like someone explaining to him the concept of an SPV, and I'm like, I'm just thinking like, oh, yeah, that's such a simple concept. Like, you know, an SPV for the listeners, if you don't know, it's a special purpose vehicle. It's like typically an LLC that you'll set up for like receiving investment from limited partners and then distributing that investment to, you know, uh, it's like basically for setting up an investment fund, you'll distribute the the funds to other companies and then use the SPV to, you know, uh, manage like the distributions back to the investors. So uh, it's like commonplace now, like you can go to AngelList and spin up an SPV with a couple clicks. And uh, but he was talking about like the concept of learning about it, like you know, the first time he learned about it. And it's funny, like how much, you know, like everything in life, whether it's like hardware technology, like, uh, you know, trucks or whether, you know, like a physical ve- you know, vehicles, spacecraft, whatever, software technologies, you know, SaaS companies, business uh you know systems and legal legal approaches and legal entities and all this stuff like everything's just advancing and building and it's like every decade it's like we're all doing like totally different stuff than what we were doing the last decade yeah oh yeah 
Well, I mean, just think of even like the last year, right? I mean, with generative AI and, you know, chat GPT and just like, I mean, I just feel like, and I, and I'm, I, I mean, I would say like, I'm, te- I'm technical in the sense of like, I keep up with trends, but I'm starting to feel like, like my grandparents, like we had to show them like the, how to use the remote, right? Like on the TV, <laughs> like it's like, it's moving fast. I'm, I'm just really starting fast. to have some moments like that. Um, like I, 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 I'm starting to like, I'm, I'm 34 now. I'm almost 35. So I'm starting to, uh, put myself around younger entrepreneurs that are like in their early twenties. Like it's almost kind of like getting some of that, like secondhand, uh, you know, intensity. (laughs) I want some of that like secondhand intensity to waft off on me to, uh, you know, give me a second wind here, but, uh, I'm starting to surround myself around them. Uh, you know, some of these younger entrepreneurs and like, they are, you know, obviously like I have more experience than they do. Uh, just like, I'm sure you have more experience than I do, but you know, it's like that energy is just, uh, is incredible. And like some of the things that they're working on, like some, like they're learning in the today paradigm versus like, you know, I learned in the, you know, 15 year ago paradigm. And now I have to like relearn what the new paradigm is. So they're just like learning it for the first time. So it's like, they're not, you know, they're not like dealing with the, I guess the headwinds of like having to relearn something. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, like everything goes through these cycles. It's really interesting to watch it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know it's, and it, you know, even sector, sector advancements, things that are happening in a lot of the sectors is, is really fun. Um, you know, in, in sectors that were way behind even five years ago, and you're starting to see like this, you know, amazing catch up. It's, a, it's another reason I like the transportation sector is, it feels like it's probably five to 10 years behind automotive. Um, and having sort of an automotive, like being, being entrenched in automotive for, you know, close to 10 years, I got to see sort of the, the roadmap or the, the transformational roadmap that kind of took place over that time. Um, and there's a lot of like learnings and stuff that can, can be applied into, into the, into the trucking sector as well. So it's, it's, it, again, it's it's fun to work in, in this, in this environment right now. My brother has an auto repair shop, uh, out in Reading. They do like, uh, really, I think they do some really small light fleet stuff, like, like sub F three fifty kind of size stuff. And then they do a lot of like, just, you know, regular old, uh, you know, re- uh, like consumer vehicles, uh, repairs. And, uh, I, I, like, the the industry hasn't really changed. I, I always wonder, it's been like the same for so long. And I always think there's like some, there has to be some disruption model. And like the one that I keep thinking of, I, and I'm not sure why no one's done it yet, or if uh, someone's tried it and failed, maybe I don't know. But uh, like, imagine this concept, they have those insurance companies where you plug the thing into your computer and then it like has, you know, SIM enabled uh, connectivity. So it'll connect up to the network and like report, how hard you're braking and how hard you're accelerating, et cetera, et cetera. So you, so they can price your insurance policy uh, based on your habits. But uh, why not do something like that, but with like an auto repair subscription? And uh, and then basically, I think it would be like a marketplace, kind of like you know what you did with apartments.com, where you're like you're the platform, and then you connect the consumers with the you know the real real estate people and the landlords and whatnot. But you essentially kind of have like this network of shops maybe even like mobile technician shops that go and like service the vehicles. 
and you have like this predictive thing that's kind of like predicting the maintenance and I, you know, and then have it like more of a subscription model where you just pay like a monthly amount, kind of like, uh, you know, part of, you could even maybe be like finance into your car payment too. Like maybe you could use like dealers to like, just put that right into the car payment, uh, uh, you know, when they do the financing, but, uh, how, why doesn't that exist? I'm just curious. Um, it's probably resourcing on how to figure out how to connect it all, right? I mean, automotive is tricky. Um, in a lot of people love just to jump in automotive because they think it's, you know, it's a, it's close to a, you know, it's a eight hundred fifty, you know, million dollar, uh, you know, TAM. It's it's a massive, massive TAM, right? And so you got this, you got a lot of money sitting out there with all these, you know, all these different you know, product services, you know, everything from the manufacturer down. That's the whole like, industry, Tam, like including auto sales. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it might even be more, it's, it's uh, seems small. Looked, yeah. I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, it's, it's the second uh, from a, from a GDP, it's a second in the United States uh, behind housing. Uh, it's, it's massive. Um, so if you think of like, I don't know, what do we do? Probably 13 million new cars and, you know, last year, I think we sold 13 million new in the United States, and that might even be a little high. Um, What's the I average price? Like, what, 30,000 or something? Or Oh, no, it's up. I think it's probably even 40 now. 40,000. Um, and then there's probably, I don't know, maybe 40,000 or sorry, 40 million used, um, 35 million used. Um, but again, I, I haven't looked at the, um, I haven't looked at the numbers in a really long time. So, um, I think that's like, in the billions. Yeah, I mean, what's yeah, that? That's I think that's like is that it should be like eight hundred fifty I I don't know what it was. Um total I listened to a podcast called My First Million. They're one of their slogans is we don't do public math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I knew these numbers by heart a long time ago. Um but the you know it, it's what what's what's tough in automotive specifically? It's it's very resource intensive. Like, and I'll even tell you, like, when we built Driven. Um, me and the co-founder would literally park our car. It'd be like the equivalent of you having in um, in uh, Northeast Philly, like in Dealership Row, right? Like we would we would just park our car here in Chicago. We walk up Dealership Row, and we'd ask if we could buy cars from them, like a wholesaler and we'd have trucks ready and we would literally just send cars to 300 miles away in the markets that needed it. And we essentially just created like an arbitrage model. And that's how we started the company. And then we figured out how to do it technically. That was cars.com. No, this is driven. Driven. Okay. And that's, yeah. um, that that's literally what you guys did. Just bought cars cheap well, in one market and moving to the market that, that, it started that way yeah but our 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 goal was went to cars.com and got every every car that was on our website that was that was used not new used and then we went to car auction services which owns Odessa so they had 65 auction sites and we got every car running through the lane so what we knew is we knew the re retail price we knew the wholesale price and then what we started looking at is how long were vehicles staying on dealers' lots. So if it usually crossed over like 70, 75 days, 
it was going to be pretty difficult for them to sell it at a price point. We knew what the price ranges were. So we could go in and offer a little bit more than the wholesaler, a little a little less than they were going to get for retail, but kind of in this sweet spot that they would liquidate it that day to us. And our promise was that it wasn't going to stay in market. So we would actually ship that car. We, we did studies of where there was undersupplied markets and we get those vehicles from the oversupplied market to the undersupplied market and just play a little bit of arbitrage. And we started finding the recipe for success and we created six markets that we could basically trade vehicles in. So I don't know if you know this story. I'll, I'll just do a quick, uh, a short one for the listeners, but uh, the Rothschilds family, uh, they're like, potentially, they're, they're considered to be potentially one of the wealthiest families of all history based on, you know, obviously not in today's dollars, but, uh, you know, based on like, you know, what the GDP was back then and what how much wealth they had amassed. And their entire business was back, it was like the late 1700s, early 1800s, all across Europe. They created the fastest horse network, uh, like the fastest like horse, uh, you know, they, they could move, they could move horses across land faster than anybody, including governments. So uh, what they did was uh, essentially that was like the power, like that's like the internet. If you have the fastest internet connection faster than anybody else like if you can get an email to you know to california from new york faster than anybody else that's like extreme power and they would like they would know like if england was fighting a war you know say in you know somewhere in like eastern europe they would have that information back to london before the politicians of london knew whether they won or lost the, the war uh they would know in london before like the actual like leaders of the country would know king and queen and everything and uh, they basically <laughs> built this like money arbitrage, like a, I think it was like gold and silver and like foreign exchange arbitrage, or they would just move like assets across different cities. They would just know like what the price of things were in different cities at different times. And they would just like literally built this like giant arbitrage network. And they were making so much money so fast that they actually didn't even like know how much money they had or where the money was because it was just moving around so much so fast. And they had no accounting system, but uh, total side tangent. I, I love that story. And uh, the way that you started talking about building driven, like moving the cars around the country and like buying them in a cheap market, moving them to a more expensive market and selling them uh, that it just like a, kind of triggered that uh, that story in my head. It's uh, it's just such like a, you know, again, it's like one of those unsexy things. Like you just find like these weird business opportunities and just like, execute on them well and uh yeah it's it's really uh i i love i love those stories oh yeah it's there, there's a lot out there um and and automotive is just no different than transportation there's so many niche little plays that you can find um whether it's in the hardware it's in the software it's in the services um it, it's you know in the dealership uh, for the consumer, you know, for the technician, there's, it's, it's endless, you know, uh, 2021, it was 200 billion, all, all encompassing. That's manufacturing, everything in automotive manufacturing to dealership to everything was 200 billion. Yeah. That's that ju just in the U S mm -hmm. yeah, that seems, that seems right to me. Uh, Best United States. huge, huge market. I mean, it's, uh, I have a friend who, uh, built a, um, 
a SaaS company called Bolton Technologies. They build a SaaS company that that services, you know, like the repair orders and the marketing platforms of the vehicles. And like, you know, the technicians can like take pictures. Like if they're in there, like they see a brake line broke and there's like, you know, fluid or something or like fluids leaking and it's all over the engine, they can snap a picture and then it just gets sent right to the customer's phone while they're in the waiting room. So it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. You're familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, I, ha- I didn't know the name of the company, but yeah, so while the person's in the waiting room, they can, it's like a more convincing sort of story to be able to show them what's going on underneath. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, the technician can like draw on it, like circle, like here's the fluid leaking all over, yeah. you know, the bed of your engine or whatever, like, you know, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like take this part off and replace this and it's going to cost $300. Yeah. And uh, and then the customer's like, all right, well, shit, I have to do it. Like it's leaking fluid all over the place as opposed to like someone just coming out and saying, like, give me three hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's that's a cool, very neat product and and definitely helpful for the, uh, you know, for the customer. Yeah. But those uh, those businesses, though, it's like. Like, that's just like a feature that uh, like that's just like a no brainer. It's like one of those features where uh you know the industry is just like doing it a certain way and now that this feature exists it's like it's such a no-brainer that like how how did you operate all this time i guess you could bring the customer back into the shop and then that's like an insurance liability and then you have to like tell them to climb under the car and like look at it but you know how it's like how did business how how did it like how did it exist before this now now that now that this is here it's it's one of those features that just kind of changes the whole game uh, but I, I think what you're doing is kind of like that. I think there's uh, an element to uh, this predictive maintenance thing, especially for critical infrastructure. Uh, you know, and trucking is a critical infrastructure, but any kind of critical infrastructure, I think there's a, a you know a really uh, game changing element to uh, to what you're working on. Yeah, and it's it's um, it's 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 greenfield, right? I mean, there's 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 so many different directions and. Honestly, the as a as a leader of the company, the thing that I you know, if you said if you asked ten of my employees said, what is the one word Kane probably overuses you know on a on a weekly monthly basis, they would say it's the word focus, and and you know I learned a very valuable lesson even at Driven because the TAM was so big and automotive and we were constantly being pressured to like. Did you look at this? Did you look at this? Did you look at this? And you can boil the ocean and you can basically get out of scope real, real quickly on what you're building or what you want to service. And so it's really this idea of focus and it's let's be really good at one thing, right? And to me, it's precision of our data models to be able to give it to the decision maker and give confidence, right? Like that, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what we're trying to build every day. Is that just our insights are the best in the business, and they, when somebody gets an insight, they're like, "Okay, I trust that." It's helped me dozens of times keep the drivers safe, keep the drivers happy, keep the truck on the road a little longer. You know, helps me with parts. Um, you know, parts available. You know, um, uh, making sure that the parts readily forecasted um, the, the uh, part availability, and just and bring that whole whole thing together. Um, and believe we could go to a lot of other things, uh, for a lot of, you know, we could go build work order management systems and we could build PM scheduling software, but like, 
there's other companies doing that. And there's nobody really, I think, doing what we're doing because we've been doing it for eight years. Yeah, it's a good spot to be. Uh, well, Kane, anything you want to close on here? Any uh, plugs or, uh, you know, last, last items before we hop off? No, I, I, I thank you for the interest in uptake and, and just hearing the story and uh, appreciate it. And, you know, best of luck with, uh, with what everything you're doing, which I know is a lot as well. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, not a problem.